Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News, joined today by Spencer Paulison, News Director. I'm here. Spencer, we survived the Tour de France. We've, we're in the middle of surviving the Tour of Utah right tour now. Tour of Utah is underway. Stay tuned for more on that. Yeah, we have some good stuff going on in the world of pro racing. Tour of Utah, Tour of Poland, lots of rider transfers. Transfer we, season's underway. Oh, yeah. We are going to talk about zero of those topics today. Not um, today. Yeah, today we're going to take riders on a little bit of a tour off-road. Um, our dirt issue of the magazine just came out called America's Dirty Secret, Why Innovative Off-Road Events Like Dirty Cans and Epic Rides Thrive from Coast to Coast. This is the August issue of Velo News. And we wanted to do a podcast about uh, dirt racing. We have a couple of really fun interviews to uh, play for the good listeners today. Spencer, I want to t- I want you to talk about the interview you have for us, first of all. Right. First up, we've got Ned Overend. The captain. The captain. I caught up with him back at uh, Sea Otter Classic. So this one's, you know, from a few months ago, but pretty much all of it is very interesting still to discuss. And I'll tell you what, just personally, it's just an honor because growing up as a junior mountain bike racer, I remember watching Ned race and it's just, it's really cool to meet him in person. He's a very, very nice and humble guy. I actually even got to go on a ride with him and uh, some some of the specialized guys there at Laguna Seca. Uh, anyway, I talked to Ned about just kind of a lot of different things related mostly to mountain bike racing, talking about the health of mountain bike racing and things like, you know, the most important tech innovation for him in mountain biking, his favorite race bike, uh, you know, and also talk to him about how he can just keep on racing and still racing really well into his like fifties. And he's, he's just the ageless wonder. Yeah. Ned, um, Ned's awesome. He's way older than all of us. He could drop us. No problem. Yeah. Ned will drop you. He would crush us. Yeah. He would crush Ned us. Ned could drop you by looking at you. Ned Overin could drop you just by looking at you. Thank God he's in the, in Durango far, far away from Boulder. So he, he doesn't throttle us on the lone tries. Yeah. And he now competes in like the old man categories. Although I think he still makes it out for the elite field for like an iron horse. It just, just, just punishes fools. Yeah. God. Got to hop in, right? You got to make it happen. But uh, yeah, it was a great talk with him. Uh, we even uh, talked a little about uh, Steve Tilford, a rider he was very close with who um, tragically died earlier this year. And that was kind of fresh on our memories at Sea Otter because it happened fairly recently then. So I uh, talked to him a little about that, but um, just a great interview and a really nice, really nice guy to talk to. So we've got that interview coming up first. Yeah, and then uh, moving on, um, our very own Chris Case and Kristen Legan had a chat with Tim Johnson, former cyclocross great, about the new, hot new, uh, just the, the new trend in gravel racing. That's right. And why a lot of elite racers, retired racers, people who just love cycling in general, gravitating towards innovative events like Dirty Kanza, um, Grinduro, uh, some of these other gravel races. I've done I've done none, no gravel races. Well, I have done some of those Rafa prestige rides. Mm. They're on gravel. That's gravelly. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably going to be best if you stay away from those, judging by how just destroyed your bike yeah. gets. Just strictly True. riding on pavement. Yeah. If we send you out on some dirt, Fred, that thing's going to implode explode yeah well, uh, let's keep it safe anyway i hope you guys interview enjoy these interviews and we will get back to our uh traditional bevy of takes road racing peter sagan's bald head that kind of chatter uh next week so we are here at the sea otter classic talking to ned overend uh ned 
can you start us off by recalling your first time racing here at Sea Otter? Do you remember? I'm not. I think I've been here 26 times, and the, you know, for like the first 20 of them, I was probably doing a fair amount of racing here. So they kind of blend together. But I remember it used to be earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. So we used to have some pretty rough weather, so there was some really muddy, especially they had a circuit race, like super muddy circuit race, where you're like running through mud bogs and stuff like that. So it's, it's quite a bit different than it has been for the last several years when it's later in the year. Did you like those muddy races like that? Were those, were those days you looked forward to? It was, there were some interesting sections on that course, because you'd come into a screaming downhill and then try and find a line through this mud bog, and it was it was popular with the crowd, because invariably, you know, guys would be going over the handlebars into the mud and stuff like that, so <laughs> there's a lot of pressure from the crowd uh, to make it through, so good spectator sport. I like the early years, I think, a little better, because uh, the pros did the, you know, two laps, so a big 40-mile cross-country, and they had a circuit race. And now, you know, they're they're staying within the UCI limits and doing a short uh, cross-country race, short loop, and uh, better for the crowd, but I think the, I prefer the classic longer-style course myself. So mountain bike racing has just changed so much over that course of time. It's, I mean, even speaking for myself, having started mountain bike racing in the late 90s, to have seen it change that much, and I can only imagine for you, having kind of been in on the ground floor. Uh, tell me about um, your take on where mountain biking is at today in terms of like how healthy is racing and how healthy is the sport itself, and is there a difference between those two? Um, yeah, that's that's a big question. But let's let's start with racing. Racing is, I think it's it's healthy but it's a little bit fragmented you know you're not having these massive races so much because there is so many different races right and now we have cross country we have uh different marathon races so some marathon races are really popular uh and then there's some areas where cross country is really popular if you look at like the over the hump series in uh orange county and uh, the there's a Wednesday night race called the Dirty something in San Diego that, you know, those races are thriving and they're midweek races. You know, yeah. they're seeing three or 400 people in midweek. Yeah. And then you look at the Midwest, like, you know, in Michigan and, and their cross country races are thriving. You got Todd Sadow who's putting on races like Whiskey 50 and uh, 24 Hours of the Old Pueblo, one of the last remaining 24 hour races. So certain events are thriving. And then uh, there's other cross-country races that are not doing that well. What do you think it is about the races that are thriving that helps them do so well? I, I think you have to show the racer a quality experience. You know, we, it kind of got so that there was cross-country circuit races, you know, and classes were starting at 7 a.m. and classes starting 10 minutes apart. So you're, you know, you're hyperventilating in a dust storm and you're catching other categories and it wasn't a quality experience and those people they just don't come back to those events so you have to in order to get repeat entrance year after year you have to show them a good experience and that's one thing Todd Sadow has been great at I yeah it's amazing how that series has grown and I've certainly watched that in the last five years it's very cool um in terms of tech you know we're here at Sea Otter lots of new tech here what in your mind is the most important mountain bike tech innovation sort of 
over the years? What's what's just been the total game changer for mountain bikes? Uh, there, there's a bunch of them. I mean, full suspension has evolved so well. I mean, I, I was part of the one of the team guys who was pushing our product managers to make a full sus- a worthy cross country full suspension mountain bike. Mm-hmm. You know, and we made the epic and. By today's comparisons, it was crude, but at the time, it was, it was state-of-the-art, full suspension, cross-country. So that just continues to evolve and evolve, and the trail bikes are amazing, right? How well they pedal, the kind of control you have, you know, whether it's 650B or 29-inch wheels, bigger volume tires. There's too many things to narrow it down to, to you know, one specific innovation. But it's amazing when you pull one of those old mountain bikes off the wall from 25 years ago they are primitive and they're they're sketchy and they're you know yeah they're not much fun to ride (laughs) it's funny you're that's a perfect segue because i was gonna just say on a personal note i uh kind of gone down the rabbit hole of vintage mountain bikes lately and got my hands on a (laughs) got my hands on a 1983 stump jumper um which is pretty fun to cruise around on (laughs) Um, but it got me thinking, you know, you've been a specialized guy for so long. Tell me, can, can you think of one or two really, really memorable race bikes that you have had over the years? Just more like from a nostalgia standpoint, almost not necessarily just not necessarily performance wise, but just something that's like that bike. I will never get rid of that bike. Well, it it's interesting in the uh, we raced a stump jumper M2, which yeah. was a. Uh, a uh, aluminum alloy frame and we raced it for a lot of years and uh, so there, there was a lot of events we did on that bike and it it evolved over the years you know and got a little bit lighter and they got the they got the paint to stay on it and stuff like that but some bikes that really stand out is is uh, in 1990 we made an epic which was carbon tubes bonded to titanium lugs and it was really ahead of its time. Yeah, and, uh, you know, super light bike. You know, the geometry by today's standards was, was you know, a little extreme. You know, pretty mm. steep and pretty short. Yep. But uh, at the time, it was a super light, stiff bike. And uh, in, at that same time, in 1990, it was the first year that I'd actually used a suspension fork, the, the early RockShox RS1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that bike with the RS1 and super light, you know carbon tubes that that uh that's really become an iconic bike absolutely it's um that that era of mountain bike technology was just such a wild time of experimentation and did did you have any like real real uh kind of failures out there on the race course at any point where you're on some sort of weird uh, experimental thing that just exploded under here or anything crazy like that um i've i've had a few bikes break that uh, you know which is what the team bike prototype bikes should break you know you should be pushing the envelope and we're the kind of the guys who are testing them so i've had some bikes break that uh i had to squirrel into the team truck quickly before (laughs) nobody anybody could see it right but uh i I tell you i remember thinking back to the early rock shock when i first got on that rs1 a guy came to durango he he put it on my bike i went for a ride and i thought okay now here's the Here's a suspension fork. I'm going to go test it on the rockiest, roughest trail I can find. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about two centimeters of travel, you know, with hardly any dampening. And it just it yeah. blew through it so fast. <laughs> really, it just made the front end steeper. And I remember I was, like, doing this rocky descent. I went over the bars. 
and I, I banged my forearm on a rock and I had this big old lump just <laughs> immediately formed. And I, I looked at it and I thought, Jesus, I've just, I've just ruined my whole season with this stupid <laughs> fork. You know, I, I thought I broke my arm. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, so I hated the fork right away, right? So it took me a while before I, I warmed up to it again, you know, and used it then in the 1990 World Championships. But, uh, you know, it was only, it was two centimeters of travel. And, you know, it wasn't meant for a rock garden. Yeah. You know, but for a typical cross-country course, it, it did help. Yeah, that was, it's, it's amazing how that, that innovation just yeah. all of a sudden opened the floodgates. The start, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, back to racing now for a sec. And um, you've, you've just done so many different races over the years. Is there a race that you have yet to do that you've always just really wanted to, to, to race in and it's still on your bucket list? There's a bunch of them, but, you know, one that comes to mind is the BC Bike Race. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I like that because I'm not really an ultra-endurance guy. Mm-hmm. And the, the beauty of the BC Bike Race, besides the trails, mm-hmm. you know, they're rough trails, the, the days aren't that long, mm-hmm. you know, so they don't beat you up, so you don't go, like, slower and slower every day of the mm-hmm. week, right? So uh, you're still kind of fresh, and uh, I like that idea. Plus, it sounds like a real, almost a trail bike race, yeah. right? I mean, that's what guys oh, are yeah. saying. They're using more of trail bikes than actually XC full suspension. Sure. So sure. that part would be interesting, too. Definitely. Um, and it's also just amazing to me just how you've kept racing and have stayed so fast just for years and years and years. Do you have some advice for um, racers who are maybe getting a little older, but they want to stay, they want to keep racing, they want to keep at it? Uh, what, what, what kind of advice do you give to people who are trying to stay fit like that? Well, one thing that's worked for me, and, and it's been you know, proven out in a bunch of different studies, is that more HIT training, right? High intensity mm-hmm. and, uh, and less volume. And that, that has just been the way that I love to train. You know, I've never been a big volume guy. I like to go out and go hard, and I'm also not afraid to recover. I'm, I'm not obsessive about my training, so I take days off. And that has worked well for me even when I was younger, but it's really important when you're older, mm-hmm. you know? High-intensity training, but you got to pay attention to recovery. And uh, if you look at Joe Friel's book, Fast After 50, yeah. that's kind of what he emphasizes. And in my case, it's, it's, it, I'm a good example of it, I think. Yeah, that's exactly what had me thinking about it from your, your chapter in that book. It's actually a VeloPress book, so yeah. right in-house with us here at VeloNews. And um, it's good stuff, very interesting to see how, how, how the body changes and evolves and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, is your son still racing? No, he doesn't race. He, uh, he was living in San Diego, and now he's back in Durango. So he's, he's doing some more trail riding since he's back cool. in Durango. And he's been commuting on a, a turbo e-bike. Nice. nice. So, uh, but he, mainly just a trail rider, not racing. Right on. Do you, um, do you have any thoughts on, on junior development? And, I mean, you've seen him do some racing over the years, I'm sure. And just kind of, you probably have a father's uh, perspective on that as well as one of yeah, a pro racer. For sure. I mean, NICA is amazing. It is, yeah. You know, and that's an important organization to support because, yeah, when I think when I was back in high school, it, would, it you know, oh, yeah. it would have been so good. Because, I mean, I found cross-country racing and cross-country running, and it kept me out of trouble. Yeah. I had a lot of buddies that barely survived high school, you know, because they didn't find some kind of sport. But something like 
mountain bike cross country racing, you know, is fun and it's healthy and it's Safe made a too. huge difference in, yeah. in kids' lives. Definitely. So the guys at Nike are doing an amazing job and that's, it's growing year by year and they're, they're growing not too fast because they want to keep it controlled, they want to keep it quality, quality product. So uh, what they're doing is amazing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We've got a Colorado High School Mountain Bike League that's part of NICA. It's it's really cool, and, and just the participation levels. It, to me, that's really where cross-country racing is alive and well in the U.S., um, you know, despite the fact that there's kind of this fragmentation of all mountain biking in terms yeah. of people doing enduros and longer-distance stuff and all that. It's, it's very encouraging. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, it's a great point when you talk about where is mountain bike racing going because if you look at the national championships... You know, like three years ago, they, the junior categories were really small, mm -hmm. and now they're getting really big, and it's because NICA has gotten more kids in the race. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. Definitely. Um, okay, let's do a fun one. So, right. in my book, there isn't really a better cycling name than Overend. I mean, it's like, can you think, I mean, the only one that comes to mind for me is Sarah Hammer. Like, that's a pretty yeah. good name. Hammer's pretty good. I think she just won another medal at Track Worlds, right? But she did. If, if you switch the uh, letters around in Ned a little bit, you get end over end. So <laughs> That's true. That's that's the risk of having that name. Yeah. Well, you could, I don't know, is it short? Is Ned short for anything? Or It is. Uh, yeah, my real name is Edmund, so... Uh, see, you could go that route, and then you would avoid the... Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, we like to jo joke around, like... Um, I feel like with the BMX, the Olympic BMX, you always get really good Dutch names for the Olympic yeah. BMX. And um, we were like, you know, oh, like Lars Vanden Pumpen Jumpen or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it could do that and no one would really know. <laughs> yeah, there's been some good names. How about like Bernie U, right? Bernie Unhasabiskay is <laughs> a guy's name. He's yeah. an American downhill racer. Yeah, yeah, there's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, well, uh, uh, Ned, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and um, I got to say, you know, we're all really, really sad about this, and we want to extend our condolences to the loss of Steve Tilford. Um, I just figured if you were if you were interested, maybe give us one of your favorite Tilford memories, because, you know, he's such a larger-than-life character, and you spent a lot of time racing with him over the years, and I know you're going to go to his service on Sunday, and I just, uh, I figured I would ask and see if you had any, had any good stories. Yeah, well... I can remember the first time I met Steve was uh, 1983 when I was road racing was before I'd, right before I'd gotten into mountain bike racing and I was put on the uh, I was new to road racing right I just started in 82 as a cat 4 and then 83 I was put on the Raleigh team for the Coors Classic international stage race and so I was super green to you know first time I'd ever done an international race or barely even a stage race and uh, Steve was on that team, and Andy Hampston and Thurlow Rogers were all on it. So just all a stars. bunch of iconic names, yeah. right? And uh, Tilford knew that I was green and that I needed some, some help. So right away, the guy took me under his wing and uh, helped me make it through that stage race and gave me all kinds of advice that first week, just having first met him, you yeah. know? So it's, and that is classic Steve because, you know, the guy was always helping people, always giving people advice and... You know, no matter who you were, so in, in all types of cycling. So uh, that's cool. That's a good memory of Steve. You know, he uh, he died young at 57, 
But he packed a lot of living into those 57 oh, yeah. years for sure. He definitely did. He definitely did. What, what uh, of all those pieces of advice he was feeding you during the course classic, is there one that really stands out? One that kind of maybe saved your oh, bacon a little in a well, rough patch, maybe. <laughs> Somewhat in a in a set, in a week long stage race like that, positioning in the pack is really important. You know, you you've got to be out of the wind, but at the same time, you got to be towards the front because when the bike when the pack splits up, you know, you can't be closing the gap. So just a, really about being an efficient rider in a in a big pack like that that's that's a very nuanced thing to learn at yeah. the highest level of sport yeah. hopping right into the course classic like that that's um something people take a lifetime to learn yeah right i mean you see you see guys who've done race pro a long time in the u.s and they go over to europe and that's the hardest thing they do is, oh, yeah. is trying to conserve energy before they get to the hard parts of the uh yep. the course that's exactly it so that's it's, exactly it's it. a real skill cool well thank you so much for your time Ned Overend, mountain bike legend, world champion, and um, enjoy your rest of your time here at Sea Otter. Great. Thanks. Good talking to you. I am Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News. I'm joined with Kristen Legan, associate editor of Velo News. And uh, we're going to be joined today by a special guest on our first show. This man has seen it all in his career. He's done road racing. He's started out mountain biking. He uh, has been to world championships for cyclocross. He's won the national title numerous times. He's transitioned late in his career into somewhat of a uh, ambassador for the sport, doing many different things. Welcome, everybody, Tim Johnson. Thanks, guys. So, welcome, Tim Johnson. Let's uh, let's jump right in. Sounds good. In your opinion, why are we seeing this trend of, of uh, the growth of non-traditional racing, these gravel races, these dirt races, Dirty Kanza, Overland, and, and other races like it? Uh, you know, I think the racing side of it comes from people wanting to continue to ride their bike but not wanting to get into, you know, into the deep end of road racing or stay in the deep end of road racing. I see and talk to a lot of people who are finding these multi-service events as uh, as someone who's been riding for a really long time but once they get into it they're riding next to people that have just started and you don't really see that in any other discipline except for cross you go to a road race uh, you never ride with or next to someone who just started your sport it's um, a very unusual thing so i think that the gravel dirt scene is full of those kinds of of moments and that's what makes people feel like they're welcome and and what makes people feel like they want to continue to do it as someone who's uh, sort of a celebrity out there in the (laughs) cycling world i'm sure when you go to and you've been to a number of races that that sort of fall into this category you work with the promoters and and what are you seeing from their side of things they must be pretty excited to be putting on races like this they love it, and they love it because it's it's easy and customer satisfaction is just through the roof. It's um, you know, it's not it's not dealing with a ton of cops and and permitting and um, you know, incidents with yellow line rules and cars. Um, you still have to be aware that you need to make a course that's safe for people who are going to do it, but it's not nearly as difficult as putting on a road race. And they get a lot of they get a lot of positive feedback. You know, whether it's an event that has thousands and thousands of people like Dirty Kansas or 
you know, a, an event like we have back east here, like Rasputitsa or Vermont Overland, you never know who's going to line up. But the main thing that keeps everyone together or the main the common theme between them all is just that they're they're having a blast. And I think that that's very fulfilling to a promoter or a series of promoters who haven't really had that kind of positive feedback in a long time. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of races like Dirty Kanza and Overland. What has been your personal experience at these, and, and what started drawing you into those types of races versus you know just sticking with cross or your traditional road racing? You know, I think in my case, I was... I was already stepping away from road racing. I, the last year of, of full-time professional road racing for me was 2010. And I had I had been riding off-road in my own day-to-day. I, I had been spending more time on, on rides that weren't necessarily just training rides. I was still racing cross in the fall, but the spring and summer, as soon as I got away from the road scene, became more open. And I had more time to do something like that. I remember the first time I really hit a dirt section in the middle of a big road ride. And it was with Rafa in 2011. And we were riding the Tour California route with a group of about eight of us. And we were on the same route that the racers would have been on. But because of a small change in um, in the course where we would have had to go through a, an army base um, that we, we didn't have access to on that day, we, we decided to take this other road. And it was maybe 10 or 12 miles of very fun, fast, rough dirt road. Absolutely zero cars. That to me just showed that the reason why we're out there is is for those moments. And then we got back onto you know, central coast, uh, or sorry, central Valley roads around Sacramento that were just busy and cars and people obviously didn't want to see us on the road. We, we definitely felt the pressure of the vehicles around us. And it just made me realize that what we did was really special by, by being on the dirt. And I think that that kind of feeling is very common for people when they first start to ride off road is they don't even realize the difference until they go back to doing their their usual ride or, or you know their their thirty mile loop that they like to do a couple times a week, then they realize, oh wow, you know, that really was different when I was off in the middle of nowhere. Did you ever do the Saturn Classic? I did. Yeah, um, the Saturn Cycling Classic. I did that in two thousand one and two. Was that ahead of its time? Do you think or big time, big time? Yeah, um, we didn't have mass start road races really then um and that's why it was a professional race it was only for pro one i think um and you know we were on a regular regular bike nothing was different except for you know when we would switch to a mountain bike on the descent of quinella pass but besides that you know i think if they did that exact same event right now there would be two thousand people at the start line not a hundred maybe i mean i think even then they had a hard time actually getting people to enter it because the attrition rate was so strong it was so far out of the norm for those who don't know could you describe the the that race yeah so the the saturn cycling classic was boulder to breckenridge it was 140 miles i think and it included what three or four big climbs including guanella pass which was dirt all the way up and all the way down and that was an hour-long climb at speed i mean it was just a nasty nasty climb and it went up to almost twelve thousand. 
maybe it, it might have even been a little higher than that and that was just so different because it was you know early uh, maybe june you know it was still cold and and we went to altitude before to to kind of get ready for it and it was just shocking how different it was you know the first descent on uh, oh my god road going into idaho springs which i had never ridden before i'd, I'd been training in boulder before that um, all of a sudden we were riding on these roads that were so far off the normal route. It wasn't just, you know, up 36 and go do left hand and, you know, maybe super James as, as a way to get a training ride in, which had dirt on it. This was like, this was descending on really rough dry gravel, um, switchbacks and you know, doing it on a road bike. Um, the funny story was we were doing a, a pre-race shoot for NBC and I was picked to be one of the riders. I went up there with uh, Jeremy Horgan Kabelski and we went to the top of Oh My God Road and they were they put a camera on JHK's bike and I was in front of I was on my road bike and the producers, you know, he's got the word of um, Len Petty John, you know, hey, let's get some good images. We want to be able to show it during the race. And I was just listening to all these guys talk about how this shot needs to be good. It needs to be fast. It needs to be this. And JHK is like, well, you know, I need to be right behind you because it's a wide angle lens on the camera. I went down this ascent and I made it two corners before I absolutely yard sailed, ate shit so bad. I took off all the skin on my right side of my body. And JHK was like, you know, I'm laying on the ground. I'm already bleeding. I've got the dust like starting to coagulate in the blood. And uh, and he's like, yeah, Tim, he's like, I thought you were going in that corner kind of fast. I was like, oh, you jerk. I hurt so bad. I, that was it. The shoot was over. I mean, it took all of like five minutes for me to ruin the shoot. It made it into the show. If if that makes it story any better, that was kind of cool. And I was in the, you know, eventually I recovered. I made it in the breakaway that year, but... Oh my God, that hurts so bad. Well, it's great to relive that Saturn Cycling Classic with you a little bit there because that was an amazing race, but short-lived. And like we've we've said, it probably way ahead of its time. And maybe you could uh, talk a little bit more about some of these other races that you've done and compare them to something like that. They're a little tamer these days. You're, you're riding with mixed caliber of, of riders. Well, I think that is definitely the part of um the entire dirt gravel scene that that means the most it's it's having that lack of um dis- difference between everybody and i think in some ways again it, it relates to to cyclocross more than mountain bike because in cross even though you might be in a different category you're still racing on the same course kind of nearly at the same time so if you if you have a friend who's not the same level as you are you still share in that experience by being, you know, part of cyclocross. In this kind of dirt gravel scene, you're doing it in real life. You you may actually be riding next to each other, and then you you'll split up and you'll have your own race while they have theirs. But you know, you're very much attached to each other in that way. Um, these kinds of rides are definitely going to be the savior of what bike racing is for a lot of people because it it really has a low barrier of entry. Um, besides that the simple tech stuff like the tires and tubes and you know bike choice that are that are being tackled and and being fixed um and there are solutions out there for people besides that it's really easy to hop into these things and and that's very different from road racing and and less intimidating than mountain biking 
Yeah, it seems like, you know, you can ride a mountain bike, a road bike, cross bike, whatever you have in your garage. And and uh, rather than road racing, where the emphasis is always on, you know, like what's the most aero and most expensive type of stuff you can. So it's nice to have that that option for people who are new or old, but aren't willing to, you know, put in tons and tons of money to just, you know, just into their bike. Yeah, you don't you don't have to be nearly as specialized in your equipment as you would if you're trying to be a, a crit guy in SoCal or uh, a climber in you know where you guys are in Colorado. Yeah, I think that it really does kind of even things out. You know, some of the events that you know are different in their own way in that in this kind of multi-surface world. Um, I haven't done Belgian Waffle Ride, but I know that it's more of uh, a fast race that goes over these different types of terrain while something like Vermont Overland is, is less of, it's less of a race and more of a challenge. Um, you know, you've got sections that, that are incredibly steep. You know, these roads are a hundred years old. They're kind of overgrown and, uh, there may only be one line, even though it's a wide trail through the, you know, the deep dark woods of, um, of Northern Vermont. Uh, it's almost like being on single track you know, Belgian Waffle Ride has very fast, you know, dirt roads, uh, double track, you know, you, you'll have some tight sections, but not nearly as much as this. Um, something like Rasputitsa, that's also an even more uh, kind of an extreme example of it because they have, uh, they have sections that it's a snowmobile trail and there is still snow on the ground and, and you have to try and ride it on a bike that's definitely not made for it. Um, but it doesn't have a ton of fast road sections. So it's, it's more of a, a technical version of this, like Paris to Ancaster, which is one of the original events that's in Ontario that has some single track sections and it dumps you out onto wider, faster roads over and over again. Um, so it kind of evens things out a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of a, a position battle, but it's more of, you know, can I survive this section to get to the next road section and then move on from there? Yeah. I think that's part of the fun of some of these races where there is no perfect choice in equipment. There is no perfect bike kind of crusher in the tusher has, should I ride the mountain bike? Should I ride the cross bike? What's my gearing going to be? You know, at times, no matter what your choice, you'll kind of suffer. And at other times you'll have an advantage over other people. And that sounds like what these other events you're, you're describing ha have that element too, that makes them a little bit unique, a little more challenging. Yeah. If, um, if you ask Lynn about her first crusher in the toucher experience, um, she'll tell you that she wishes she could hit the redo button. You know, I had a slate and she had her scalpel and it was just not the right pick. You know, she's, her strong points are going fast on, on the road and being able to climb fast. And she wanted to go faster on the downhill. She wanted to be able to to turn over a huge gear to keep that momentum up in the speed up because at altitude there's there's so little return on on suffering it's like you just you're desperate for more momentum even though it's just kind of not there you know this this slate was developed to try and be that bike that's not perfect at anything but pretty good at, at most things although i gotta tell you that i had a hard time keeping up with danny pate when he was on a pinarello Team Sky bike from Roubaix with 25s on it, and I was on my slate with 40C tires and a lefty on the front. He rode that at Crusher and the Tusher? Yeah. Wow. Oh my God, he was flying on that descent. It was like he was using his tires as rudders in the dirt. 
I mean, the guys, he's definitely a virtuoso bike handler. Uh, and that we're touching upon sort of the the industry's role in this. How, how much uh, of a factor is uh, the industry and manufacturers playing in the growth of this type of racing and, and riding? I think that a lot of manufacturers have learned from their experience in cyclocross where, you know, cyclocross was growing and was showing signs of, of health in, in an industry that was otherwise shifting from road. Uh, mountain bike had kind of been falling off and a lot of manufacturers felt like they missed the early part of the cyclocross boom. And so now because there was so much opportunity uh, to do gravel or dirt then they really needed to get on top of getting something out that would work for either the customers that they already had you know who are kind of hooked in with the brand or people who are just looking for a bike that could do these kinds of things and i also think that there wasn't a big step between cyclocross and road for them to find that that middle ground of a a multi-surface bike so luckily i think a lot of companies got behind it fairly quickly uh some some failed you know they they really had this gimmicky idea of of what a gravel bike was and you know some some were really successful some had you know the right kind of bottom bracket height the right kind of angle uh so it didn't feel like a cross bike that was gonna kind of buck you off um with its quick turning and uh you know it wasn't a, a hybrid bike with a really poor set of angles that made the bike feel slow and sluggish so i think it all of that development really happened in the last, what, three years? And so compare that to cyclocross, which took place over 12 years. You know, I think that the industry has really turned on a dime in, in getting product out there for people to try and, and use in these events. Do you think that this is kind of going back to something we, we touched upon earlier? Is this going to take away from other forms of racing, traditional forms, the crit racing, the time trial series, the, the road races? Or do you think this is just adding to it? I think I think it's adding uh, overall because we we are seeing more people riding a bike and racing a bike. I think that 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 number is is definitely gaining um, the number of people who are continuing to go to road, I think, is at a point where traditional amateur road racing is is not really going to grow anymore. I don't think unless you happen to live in a place where you've got great access to it and committed promoters i think that's really what's going to be key for whether or not amateur road racing continues uh to grow in certain spots i don't know that gravel is really taking anyone away from mountain biking i think that those two kind of run in parallel to to each other but i think that a a net result is probably going to be a cyclocross scene that stays healthier for longer i think a lot of us in the sport were worried that we were dealing with a bubble, we were, we were dealing with something that was so so new and exciting and was growing so fast that, you know, every time we looked back at mountain biking to, to kind of take a, a lesson or two as to why and how it blew up so badly, we never really knew why cyclocross was, was popular and why cyclocross was continuing to grow like this. But because of the addition of gravel and multi-surface racing, I think that we now have a real foundation point and I'm less worried about cyclocross being a bubble you know i'm less worried about it being a fad yeah it seems like they really complement each other the gravel scene and mm-hmm. then the in cross just you know in terms of equipment and what you're what types of surfaces you're riding but also for somebody you know tim you're probably in the same boat and having wrapped up 
your more serious racing career and then um you know looking for what's next and finding gravel was a really big thing for me because it was it was still racing but it was different it wasn't you know trying to compare myself to when I was trying to race you know seriously I don't want to have to do that but being less fit now um so so gravel and kind of gave me a way to still race still feel competitive but not have to like think about wow I was way faster you know three years ago (laughs) (laughs) gravel gravel is definitely a safe word for a lot of people and that's uh and that's that's important because amateur road racing and professional road racing carries such a, a big ticket. You know, it's you really have to. And sorry, triathlon. I mean, that's a whole nother story. It carries such a big commitment that if you don't feel a hundred percent willing to do it, then you you really don't even want to do it at all. And that's what has made people. Yeah, I want to do an Ironman. I'm going to do everything I can to get there. They get there and then they never do another one. And and that's a really common story from the triathlon side of things. And road racing, it's it's I really want to do this. I really want to upgrade. I really want to get, you know, to 3, to 2, to 1. It's very hard to climb that ladder and there's no ladder to climb in gravel or or multi-surface stuff. It's just it's so much easier to pop in and and be okay with however it goes. Do you think that's going to change? Where where do you think it goes from here? I hope not. I mean, if that changes, then I feel like we kind of ruined uh, a pretty big gift. You know, it's not a it's not a golden goose. I don't I don't feel like anyone's getting rich off the off the gravel boom. It's not like mountain biking where we had a, a pretty small group of people and companies that were really killing it while the while the uh, the overall industry grew with it and then a huge crash afterwards. I don't feel like we're dealing with that kind of scenario, I, f- I feel like a lot of the people that are trying and entering and, and participating are generally in for the long haul. And it's it's not a fad in their eyes. I, I feel like they're definitely, they will become a, a participant that'll stick around. What do you think about the whole team aspect of gravel racing? I think it's a very much a, a solo mission in a lot of people's eyes, but I feel like we've seen some teams coming into gravel and working as a team. You know, there's there's no rules against it. There's no, you know, there's nothing out there that says don't do this, but it worries me a little bit that you know, if you if you're coming in with a team to work for one specific rider, we're really pushing it towards that that road side of things, which I think a lot of us are going to gravel to get away from. So do you see that happening? And how how can we maybe prevent that from taking over gravel racing and kind of the core of what gravel is? Well, I, I would hate to see that be a, a drag on the, uh, on the experience that people have. And one thing that's definitely... 100% true is that someone will always take something more seriously than you and the people that get together and do that have at it. You know, I it's as long as people aren't winning a million dollars for winning these these events, then go for it. Um, you know, I hope you get a flat and uh and you've pissed off so many people that you know, you're going to get ridden right by. I I don't think that that overall is going to make that big of a difference. It's it's sad to hear, but you know, last year at Dirty Kansas, I was a first-time rider. I was, you know, texting Rebecca Rush, asking for advice. Um, I was uh, talking to Neil Shirley before the event. Um, you know, I was talking to Leland, you know, a ton before I got out there. Um, and it was an amazing event to be a part of at the front, in the middle, or when I was walking up the hills uh, 140 miles into that <laughs> thing before I finally just absolutely died and pulled the plug. But while we were in the lead group, when someone flatted, it 
it sucked. And, and there was a, a verbal, oh, man, really? That's a bummer for everybody that flatted. You know, we, we never had someone flat out of the league group that we said, oh, thank God they're gone. And I know I, I helped a couple guys with flats and, and I had everyone ask me if I was okay when I was having a hard time. And I think you're right. If we lose that feel and if we lose that opportunity to to be together out there, then then that's going to be a, a disappointing change. But I, I don't see that happening all the way across the board. Yeah, I think the, the community aspect of gravel and, you know, off pavement riding is, is pretty huge. And it's it's what drives it. And, you know, you go to Dirty Kanza and, you know, it's in a small town, Emporia. It's just incredible the way that the town comes out to support the racers. They're, you know, Main Street just closes down. And so you have the community aspect, you know, the community surrounding the races coming out for it. But also just it's a really tight knit community of gravel. You you can go on to Facebook forums and talk about, you know, what kind of tires to select. And, you know, people will geek out on all of this. But it's all very in a very positive positive way, which is a nice kind of changeover from from uh, road racing where it is a little bit more competitive and it is a little bit more cutthroat where if somebody gets a flat, you are a little bit relieved. And, you know, as you say, out on the gravel course, it's much more of a, a group effort and you, you want to see everybody do well and finish and, and have the race that they want. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I finished a road race and I had someone tell me what I did wrong in the race. And, uh, and that was their way of, of helping me. Um, you definitely don't get that in uh, in this kind of racing. Well, we've been talking an awful lot about gravel. I want to ask uh, Tim Johnson, who who loves to ch- try new things and and has has done a lot of things already in his career. I, I want to ask you a list of races that are out there that you may or may not want to try. I want to get your reaction, basically. So when when is Tim Johnson going to do the Red Hook crit? <laughs> oh man, uh, never. And why not? I, uh, I, I appreciate it. I love the idea of it. I like to watch it. I've got friends that do it, but I'm going to leave that one hanging. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine saying off that. I like my teeth. All right. <laughs> you may have a, an incident like you did on Oh My God Road, actually, and lose some skin. I remember Bannock Street crit in Denver when my good friend Walker Ferguson, who was world champion mountain biker at the time, he and I attacked the crit and we were off the front and it was just the two of us and we were totally going to win and he dumped it right in front of me and I watched him slide across the road before I finally hit the deck. I don't need that in my life anymore. I'm, I'm fine just uh, not sliding across the pavement. I understand. What about, um, there's a, uh, a, a rather small event, I think. Um, Kristen might know a little better than me. Her husband did the 12 hours <laughs> world time trial championships in the <laughs> desert of, of Southern California. There's also a 24 hour time trial world championships. When are we going to see Tim Johnson um, out there with his uh, TT bike, TT helmet, TT socks, TT shoes, TT everything? Oh my God. That I think that's called the World Championships of going pretty fast, but not that fast. <laughs> um, well, that might be the world's smoothest power profile. That's, right, that's probably yeah. There was a guy on a fixed gear, and he was actually just in it the whole way because you don't break, you don't wow. do anything, you just keep pedaling. Oh God, that's gonna hurt so bad. Um, you know, I actually I'm intrigued by the long distance stuff. It's um, I like I like what Teddy and I have done over the years doing our 200 on 100 and other versions of that. Um, that was a blast. We went as fast as we possibly could, but each of those 
each of those times we did it, we could draft off each other. So that's that's where I kind of get a little bit worried about doing these events where you're solo. You know, a brevet, a, a Boston Montreal Boston type thing, or a Paris Brest Paris. That is appealing because you can do it in a group, um, and you can you can still use a little bit of those tactics that I spent way too much time in my life learning. And you can also push yourself as far as you can. So yeah, I'm not I'm not opposed to those kinds of things. Okay. What about um, taking gravel kind of a step farther and doing some bike packing where you're you know doing overnights, going point to point, on road or off road really? But um, does that interest you at all in terms of racing or just going out and riding and doing some longer bike packing trips? If I can channel my my inner John Stamstead when he would do the I did a bike and that was the idea of of those kinds of riders then you know you carry what you carry you suffer through beyond belief um you know I, I'll take a credit card trip any day um the bike packing I, I think is I think it's definitely something that I will do. I think Lynn and I both are are into using in our case all these years of riding and, and doing it doing it in a new way and uh I would love to do a trip like that. I mean we we've talked about different different places to go and why, but if it's in a if it's in a format where, you know, there is a route and there is a group and and these are the places that you'll go to and you should do it as fast as you can, I think that's actually kind of appealing. I've got another one for you from the list. What about an Everest Everesting challenge? Have, do you know this? Do you know this trend? <laughs> My friend uh, Omar De Felice, who's an Italian guy, uh, another Mavic ambassador, just did one last week, and and I was watching along. You know, like a lot of people in this in social media, it looked nasty. <laughs> it really did. You I'm, watched him crumble. It, you watched him implode. Yeah, he he actually. He stayed together like he didn't he wasn't sitting on the side of the road pooping himself, but um you know it it was brutal you know it's really tough to to do that. I think that uh in my in my case, I like bite sized pieces you know cyclocross is all about sprinting out of corners, and I love attacking as hard as I possibly can, but everything, yeah, you know I'll probably leave that one out there. so what about dirty Kansas? Are you going to go back Kansas this year? <laughs> this is a trick question. Um, you know, I, I love Dirty Kanza. I, I really liked being a part of the, a part of the community for that short time that I was last year. Um, it was not a, it was not a great day out on the bike. Lynn had her derailleur rip off in the first wet, muddy puddle about 5k into it. Yeah. I think I was riding right next to her when that happened. And it was just one of those moments where you're just like, oh man, like seriously, <laughs> oh, no. 5k, jeez. You can't tell someone to stop pedaling fast enough because it's already too late. Like the sound of all of those derailers ripping off and it really only happened to the first, you know, first hundred people. I think we lost a third of us in that first hundred right away. Um, so I stopped with her, um, tried to get her back going again she said to keep going so i went instead of our plan which was to just ride together and uh i don't know you know i think uh, i'm not going to be there this year because i'll leave um i'll leave a little bit more time to recover from last year's efforts i think i took some years off my life trying to ride over those um rocky loud charcoal briquettes across the 140 miles of the route that i actually did do um, and I'll save it up for something else. But 
that's something else for me. I, I am excited to finally get to Granduro. Uh, I got I got an invite the first year and I wasn't able to make it and I immediately re- regretted it. Last year, I couldn't get up there either. But so we actually have a project going. Um, Jeff McFetridge, uh, an artist from L.A., is going to be doing a series of custom Cannondale slates and we're going to auction them off for people for bikes. And so we're going to meet up at Grinduro. Um, I'll be on one of the bikes that he makes, and uh, hopefully we'll have a few of those raffled off and sold that we can actually, you know, meet up and ride together at Grinduro. But I really, I really dig that the idea of a Grinduro in Scotland. I think that that kind of scene, going back to Three Peaks and going back to you know where where cyclocross has been for 50 years or more. Um, you know, in the UK and, and riding on those um, little tiny go path trails in the middle of nowhere with with um, those kinds of views is going to be awesome. Yeah, definitely. Grandeur is definitely my favorite race, gravel race that I've done. It's so much fun. It you know it, you get to race, you have the competitive side of it with the segments that are timed, but then you can still ride with your friends and you can hang out. You can eat a big lunch and and not worry about you know just suffering for twelve hours straight. So um, yeah, it's nice to see it expanding and, and seeing some new places. Okay, I'm sold. I want to do it. Done. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Tim. That was great. And uh, we hope to see you out there on some dirt or some gravel or maybe in a time trial position somewhere in the (laughs) Southern California desert. You got it. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, So, Spencer, Ned Overin, 61 years old. What do you, my question for you, what do you hope to be doing when you are 61? Uh, hopefully I will be living on Mars and there will be an excellent free ride course there. Ooh, Cause it's yeah. kind of got some real extreme looking cliffs, kind of Red Bull rampage style. Nice. And my entire body will be bionic, just all kinds of robot parts so that I can just get super rad on the mountain bike and not have to worry about breaking myself. Well, or if I do, they'll fix me like they did with, uh, with Luke Skywalker in empire strikes back when the hand get cut off, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, all the time you spend dirt jumping, I anticipate that your like hips are going to actually be like, f- like, like Fox shocks uh, here pretty soon. Yeah. Or they're just, if not, I'll be, if not, I'll end up being like a, like a, 13 year old golden retriever yeah yeah i need the i need those fox shocks in my hips given to me well i i really like your plans for uh, when you're 61 years old you know when i'm 61 years old i plan on being you know one of those like bodies used by our robot overlords to generate heat and electricity <laughs> for them uh so like in the matrix yeah yeah yeah. so i hope that uh, but then you would just live in a mental fantasy world right yeah it would be awesome mm, yeah. so i just hope that by that point um vela news uh you know has moved on from print and moved on from digital and is just in brain implant form mm. and so uh, i can just uh, wait by my right little to the pod, cortex wait by my pod for the next the next issue of vela news and all the great takes coming from vela news so i can just upload them right into my brain port beautiful uh well we would love your feedback on what we talked about today you can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com we'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velanews.com subscribe to the velanews podcast on itunes stitcher or google play and while you're there please leave us a comment and a rating become a fan of velanews on facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash 
the Vellon News Podcast is produced by Vellon News, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Vellon News Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Nailed it.